He was a very strong presence to a whole lot of people in how God's grace works through and redeems us, even when we think we can't put ourselves back together. Truth is, we can't do it by ourselves. We have to have God and others. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Dr. Darren Davis. He's the Vice President of University Mission at Baylor University. He's here at BYU presenting a conversation on faith-based education. And as much as I would love to dive into that for a whole hour... Don't worry, I am going to get to that. Dr. Davis, thank you for making time for this. Steve, thanks so much. It's a great honor to be here. I can read through the various symposia that you organize, that you speak out, including Baylor's annual symposium on faith and culture. You have a lot of experience thinking about ethics and faith in public life and in education. Well, I, I do. I've, I've been tremendously blessed to have a role at Baylor for the last 12 years that's allowed me to convene, I think, some interesting, compelling accounts of how questions of faith really do shine a light on uh, central issues in our culture, questions as basic and essential as uh, what's friendship and why friendship matters in contemporary life. How do accounts of human dignity matter for the practice of health care? We did a conference three years ago that was incredibly important, I thought, for a national conversation about the role of sports in American life and the way in which faith plays a role in in those discussions and in the practice of sports. We called it the spirit of sports. Just in that few sentences, you described how faith intersects with so many critical and really important parts of life to us. That's right. It does. One of the things that we hope we do at a place like Baylor and uh, and at places like BYU is to show how the commitments and the convictions and the beliefs matter for our lives today. They set for us a, an imagination for what matters most, for who we are, for who made us, for the ends and purposes of human life. You're the vice president for University Mission and the director of the Institute for Faith and Learning at Baylor in the Honors Program. I'm thinking about the idea of mission. When did you get a sense of mission, and was it headed for where you are now, or is that sort of an unexpected outgrowth of a sense of mission? That's a great question. I do believe that institutions have missions as much as individuals have missions. So it's it's a wonderful thing for me to be able to have a sense of mission and contribute to a mission of something that's larger. I really fell in love with the idea of teaching pretty early on. I had a I had a high school teacher and a couple of coaches tell me that they thought they saw something in me that might make me a good coach or a good teacher one day. I flirted with the idea of maybe wanting to practice law and you know I had this idea of going, uh, getting my undergraduate degree and and practicing law, doing law school. I found when I went to uh, the University of Texas, which is where I did my undergraduate, that I studied English and then I took a minor in philosophy and pretty soon philosophy had a hold on me, uh, asking big questions about the, the why and reading, you know, Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle and 
reading those texts and writing about them, that began to speak to me as a kind of calling to be a teacher, uh, to be a philosopher. And so I continued uh, until they wouldn't let me uh, take any more courses. (laughs) And I found my way through graduate school. My first teaching post, you know, philosophers are, are missionaries. A lot of academics are missionaries now. You People think, well, if, if you got a degree in philosophy, you just sort of pick your town and uh, look in the phone book and figure out, well, where are they practicing philosophy? That's where your job will be. <laughs> it's not like that at all. Uh, you go where the jobs are. I was able to find a really fine job at a Catholic college founded by the Norbertine Order called St. Norbert College in De Pere, Wisconsin. Hmm. And so my first teaching post as a, as a philosopher was at St. Norbert. I was there for four years and then had a chance to go to Baylor where I had done a master's degree. Baylor had been a really important place for me in understanding a pull to teach and, and maybe serve at a Christian college or university. I'd always had a hope of maybe getting to go back to Baylor. And so I had a chance to go back in 2006, and that's where I've where I've been, but I came at it through philosophy, first and foremost, and then it's led to other things, too. I wonder, and I do want to talk about the intersection of faith and philosophy, if they're different, even, but before you went to college, did you have a set of beliefs, and how soon in your life did you get those? Were you taught them at home, or something you found as you grew? Well, that's that's a great question, too. I um, My religious grounding is pretty eclectic. For a variety of reasons and circumstances, my first memories of the church and of encountering God with with other people were in a Pentecostal church on the uh, working class side of Amarillo, Texas, where I grew up. And I was taken there by really someone who became a kind of surrogate grandmother for me. She was a woman who was hired by my mother and dad to look after me when they couldn't be there. She ended up taking me to church a lot. And so as a little boy, I remember as a little boy the vivid memories of being in this small church, tambourines, uh-huh. um, sincere praying, preaching of the faith from the pastor. And, you know, they were, uh, they were into the Holy Ghost, which means they spoke in tongues. And that was something that was powerful and a bit frightening for a young guy. Outside of your experience. Yeah, it was completely all, you know, it was outside of my experience and it was sort of all I ever knew. So I remember once, Steve, there's something that's, uh, I remember, um, being touched, probably at about five or six years old, being spiritually touched by watching a young man stand and sing Jesus Loves the Little Children, because he sang it with such uh, sincerity and such such grace and such truth. He was someone who had probably been on hard times and found his way inside that church mm. and was convicted uh, in a special way to sing a kind of testimony. And that was the song that he knew. And I remember being five or six years old and that touching me enough to where I had tears in my eyes. I, and I've rem- I remember that all those years now. So those early experiences for me meant a lot because I saw people working through uh, matters of faith in a really truthful, 
honest way, I thought at the time, and I still believe so. I have lots of admiration and respect for the people who first sort of taught me the faith, although I'm not a Pentecostal. It seems like you realized at a very early age that this faith was not just something to stand and talk about or sing about in a hymn, but that it really intersected with the real events of people's lives. It did, and the woman who brought me to the faith was was this woman that I'm telling you about, my surrogate grandmother, whose name was Grace. So I heard, <laughs> could so not I call, have been more perfect. I called her, and she was, we called her Grandma Grace, and Grandma Grace was one of two of the most important spiritual figures of my life, and she she loved me like I was her own hmm. grandson, and she was the real deal Christian. I mean, she um, she believed in the gospel. She believed in playing on her piano the hymns of the faith. She read the scripture every day. And she lived her faith tangibly. She was always helping someone she thought was in need, almost to the point of it being risky for her own personal safety. She had a a house, a little apartment in the back of of her house where she would take in people who had come to the church and needed a place to stay. So I saw saw faith being uh, lived and worked out with hands and feet at a very early age. I'm real grateful for, for that sweet woman. She died about uh, 12 years ago. She was in her in her early 90s, but she, I, she's a saint to me, yeah. and I think of her a lot. That's a beautiful image, a beautiful story. Can I ask who the second figure was? Well, so eventually, through some other circumstances, my parents and I began to, to worship together. And we uh, we began to attend First Baptist Church of Amarillo, which was really my my home church growing up. And the pastor there was a wonderful man named Dr. Winfred Moore. Dr. Moore died at age ninety five just uh, three years ago, and he was a man that had this booming voice, almost the voice from God, <laughs> and he preached powerfully. He was a denominational leader in the sort of moderate movement of the Southern Baptist Convention and really was a key person in Texas Baptist life for decades. He was a 30-year pastor of the church. My friendship developed uh, really after I grew up with him, but he mentored me and befriended me and loved me. And we had a great email correspondence. I think I have 120 emails from Dr. Winford Moore. Winford Moore is a very busy guy. Uh, He had a lot to do, and he had a lot of people who were calling on him and and wanted a piece of his time because he was such a a splendid mentor and and such a pastor. But he reached out to me and really befriended me, and that made all the difference for me. Uh, Was there some key thing that you got from that relationship or from his, his experience and knowledge? Yeah. He was an ironic presence. He was a peacemaker. Hmm. He was a peacemaker uh, in the city of Amarillo. He was a peacemaker among uh, Baptists at a time in which a whole lot of Baptists were fighting about things. He was an ironic presence at Baylor at a particular time in its history. He served both on Baylor's board and then went to teach and to serve in an administrative role at Baylor. I've always been struck by the fact that you could be a peacemaker, but you could do it from a place of conviction. Hmm. And Dr. Moore was that. He believed something, and it was because of his belief in God, in Jesus Christ as Lord, that he was able to uh, to be such a, 
a peacemaker, someone who spoke uh, with great wisdom and great authority, but also with great charity. For you, is the process of conversion or of belief, is that something that just always grew in you from those early days? Or is there a moment that you can point to and sort of say, this was maybe a turning point or a commitment point of belief? I think my commitment to Christ came very early on, probably in that Pentecostal church, knowing that Jesus had come and lived and died for me, and that I wanted to be a follower of Jesus. I wanted that more than anything else. And so my conversion, I can't point to a time in particular, but I know that it happened when I was a little boy. You know, I think it's it's grown, though, because one of the things that happened to me along the way is, um, you know, I felt like there was a, a call placed upon me to, to be not merely a teacher, but to step into this space of doing something in the way of bivocational ministry. And you are pastor, I believe, of the Blue Ridge Baptist Church. I am. Falls County, Texas. Falls County, Texas. Blue Ridge Baptist Church was founded in 1859. I have no idea how many pastors have been a pastor at Blue Ridge Baptist Church, but I'm their pastor now, and it means a lot to me. The call into pastoral ministry happened in my—I'm in my 40s now, so it happened in my 40s. But it was something that I thought had been a knock on the door of my heart probably since I was a, a younger guy. So being vice president of university was not filling your time, evidently. <laughs> That's right. Everybody says, so uh, did you need one more thing to do? And the, and the fact is, being the pastor of those dear people is one of the greatest blessings of my life. Hmm. It has been, but it's even deeper now, the sort of thing that uh, it's hard for me to imagine not doing it. Because, one, I think I'm called by God to do it, and I think if you take that sincerely, then you you walk into that with faith and realize that there may be some challenges on your energy and on your time, but, uh, you know, God blesses those things, even the difficult things, too, of course. And it seems, please correct me, that this is a way to take philosophy out of the theoretical realm and live it. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, you know, I think one of the the great truths I've learned is that when I step up to preach at uh, 1130 on Sunday morning, I'm looking into the eyes of people who I love and people who love the Lord. All I'm trying to do, and this is a lot, is to let God speak through me. But that means that I have listened to God as much as I can before I try to offer a word, a word that God would offer through me. I long ago have been disabused by the idea that academics need to go in and start, you know, riding all the wrongs and fixing all the wagons of people in the congregation who are deep wells of wisdom. Mm. And so um, I'm the defender of the idea that we learn a lot from the church. That's a beautiful image that well of wisdom. And it's there. And it's there. And so it blesses my life to go. uh, We make the drive to Blue Ridge, which is about 45 minutes outside of Waco. My wife and my three daughters uh, drive out with me on Sunday morning. And we we worship and uh, sometimes eat lunch. I'll tell you one thing is a, a sure discipleship plus. Anytime you can have either fried chicken or barbecue, after the service, uh, it certainly does help with attendance. It also makes 
pretty certain that the sermons don't go too long, too, because you can smell the food being prepared. And people get a little antsy, and you know it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> well, our time is unfortunately so short. I'm having to kind of move ahead. I'd That's love fine. to linger on these experiences. But you, you mentioned that we're talking about philosophy. We're talking about ethics and morality. Many people, when they get into advanced degrees, will talk to each other, and if, if, if they find out someone's from a religious background, they will almost make an assumption, oh, so when did you leave your faith? I have heard academics say in their PhD program, they were asked that, and they said, I was kind of shocked that that was an assumption. Have you ever come up against something like that? Sure. The academic guilds are overwhelmingly secular. Mm-hmm. So the questions they ask um, make presuppositions that uh, are very often at odds with the presuppositions of people of faith. Not always, but very often. One of the presuppositions is, uh, put very bluntly, you know, smart people outgrow their faith. Mm. Um, it's just a matter of time. But uh, is that maybe a stereotype? But not actually true. Oh, absolutely. And so there's history of ideas tells us that that's absolutely false, that there's a rich tradition of people of faith who have tried and I think uh, succeeded in showing how the deliverances of faith and our God-given reason fit together. Hmm. They each and together reveal something about the nature of reality and God. And I even make the claim that sometimes the way that we talk about this uh, doesn't help. One of the key phrases that's used to describe the intellectual project of Christian colleges and universities is often talking about the integration of faith and learning, mm-hmm. so how you fit these things together. I've been, over the last few years, taken by the idea that it's not, it's not fitting these things together or trying to mix them in a blender as much as it's faith being the thing that animates everything else. and so, Including the search for knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Faith animates the search for knowledge. Faith animates the search for wisdom. Faith animates the work of— And maybe we need more wisdom than we need knowledge. Oh, sometimes. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've got lots of knowledge. I, if, if, if we wanted to, we could, we could ask the, the iPhone that we have here any particular question, and we might get— a factual answer. We need wisdom more than anything. But faith, it seems to me, is the beginning and the end of things. It's, it's if you excuse me, it's sort of the, it's the account of creation and the eschatology. And so that really gives rise to and motivates us as knowers, as communities, as people of faith to seek God and knowledge of God, wisdom that God gives us, and understanding of how God made us and the purposes God has for our lives, our calling. Here at this college, also at Baylor, there is a seeking for that as faith-based institutions of knowledge. But do you find kindred spirits wherever you go, people that resonate with those ideas? I do. I'll say first and foremost that there are people of faith engaged in these kinds of enterprises at all kinds of institutions. Um, There are phenomenal, in my own discipline, phenomenal philosophers many of whom happen to be Christian philosophers who are teaching at uh, private, secular, or public mm-hmm. institutions. I would also say that uh, on this account of, of how institutions like Baylor and BYU ought to be about the project of educating for wisdom, 
that there are a lot of people who aren't necessarily people of faith, but who have a certain set of convictions about what the enterprise of learning is and education is that share a lot of our sort of core beliefs. They don't think that colleges and universities should be first and foremost, you know, job factories. Hmm. They don't think that we ought to just hand over glove, continue to pursue programs for the sake of pursuing programs. They don't think that we uh, ought to do things without uh, an account of the why question. Fundamentally, education is about forming the hearts and the minds of young people and of ourselves uh, as as teachers and scholars. So uh, we did a conference several years ago called Educating for Wisdom in the 21st Century, and some of the best proponents of that project were, were secular humanists, those who thought, you know, the projects of Plato and Aristotle needed to be completed, and that could help us understand what the works of places like Baylor and BYU could be. What are the things or the moments or the practices, personal or otherwise, that make you feel that you're in touch with God or that you notice God working in your life? The most important practice is being still, trying to listen. That might be in the presence of someone who's speaking to you. Um, it might be some music that's playing that's touching your heart. It might be just out in the still of the night looking up at the stars. But that idea of being still and knowing that God is is something that uh, it always blesses me. The trouble of it is, of course, is that I don't do it as much as I should. But when I do it, I, I know how deeply I think we all we all need it. And that helps me a ton. Has becoming and being a father of your three daughters, has that either affected your faith or how you think of your faith? Oh, it's deepened it. Because I know that they're gifts to mm. me and to to my wife. God has entrusted them to us to care for them, to love them, to help bring them along as well as we can. I also realize, uh, I think in a deeper way, this the fragility of life. I had a dear friend who uh, I grew up with who died of cancer at age 32. I, I think about him. I think about how, how um, very blessed I am to be here <laughs> and to be with my daughters and to be with my wife, but also not to take any, not to take any days for granted. So um, fatherhood, parenthood has been, is a tremendous way that God has worked in and through me. And those girls are um, great reminders of, uh, they're all so different. They all have a great sense of humor. They all keep us uh, on our toes. Uh, when you have three, you have to go out of band-to-man defense. You have to start playing zone defense. <laughs> when you start hitting these teenage years, even more so. We're along for the for the long for the long run. <laughs> what should I ask you that I don't know to ask, or something that you feel like I want to be sure I express? One thing that I would share is the circumstances that brought me to the faith through my grandma Grace, through that Pentecostal church, in the absence of my mother and dad for those few years, and then along in their midst. You know, they were difficult years. 
my father, who died 16 years ago, was an alcoholic. There was a reason why we didn't go to church for those years. But one of the greatest blessings of all of our lives was that my father found sobriety, and his last 21 years were sober. Hmm. So there was recovery for him. He was a very strong presence to a whole lot of people in how God's grace works through and redeems us, even when we think we can't put ourselves back together. Truth is, we can't do it by ourselves. We have to have God and others. And my father was very important, and I think that's something that has been a leading light in whatever ministry I have had, either as a teacher or as a pastor and whatever it will be. That's shaped me in really profound ways. Hmm. Dr. Darren Davis, Vice President for the University Mission at Baylor University. Thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest, Dr. Darren Davis. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Can you remember a moment of conviction when something spiritual let you know it was present? Do you have a practice like being still, something that tunes you in to the spiritual world? And is there a mission for you, some area where you feel or have felt God knocking on your heart? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. After a hiatus of 40 years, Marcus Smith is once again playing ping-pong. It's because his kids want him to pretend, at least, he's still young. Emily Christofferson is a pediatric speech-language pathologist with a love for Russian literature, chocolate-covered donuts, and the month of May. Jillian Bull is a master student in organizational psychology, a lover of cooking competition shows, but not of cooking. Jillian's husband, Paul Bailey, says he's been married three years to the most beautiful girl. He loves to play soccer, run, and be with people. They recently moved from the D.C. area, and he is excited to find the next step in life. Dr. Davis touched on the idea that faith intersects with many different aspects of life and that even outside of a religious setting, there are a lot of companies or organizations that have a set of values and and some might even say a set of beliefs that they try to adhere to. And it made me think of an experience I had while working in Washington, D.C. I was working for a lobbying firm. We had a day where we had a bunch of workshops on our company's culture and how we could improve it. And one of the ways that was decided that we wanted to improve it was to create a set of company values that would kind of explain to new employees who were coming in who we were and that would kind of give us a baseline of how we wanted our work to be conducted with each other and with outside parties. And so it was just a a really neat opportunity for me to sit with my coworkers in small groups and talk about, well, what is it that we value? You know, we value integrity. We value communication in, in our workplace. And so it just made me think that, you know, even though... You know, none of us had the same religious background and we weren't striving towards a religious purpose. We nevertheless had this value system that we wanted to base our work around. 
when I hear you say that, I'm thinking about something Darren said about his early childhood where his faith was formed by groups of people. And he kind of, it was kind of an eclectic mix of, of ideas and values and teachings that he inherited. And that was his group. And you're describing, Jillian, a, a group of people coming together mm-hmm. and each contributing something to the mix. And now as soon as I say mix, I remember that Darren Davis said, you don't just put faith in the blender, right, and mix it all up. <laughs> so yeah, there's a mix there. But for, for me, faith was kind of a linchpin that everything else was supposed to connect to. Mm-hmm. And as a young kid, I wasn't just happy to have like a bucket list of different values of that people were c- contributing to me. I wanted it to come together somehow. And so I'd have uh, music lessons or I'd be studying some novel in an English class or or uh, maybe I'd be out with the scouts in nature looking at living things. For me, I was trying to see where's like the thread that goes through it all. So as I listened to, to Darren Davis, I, I like the idea that groups – contribute a whole lot of stuff to our lives. But for, for me personally, and I, I suspect for him too, faith is kind of like that thread mm-hmm. that where you, life becomes a project of trying to connect those things. Mm-hmm. And even just the vocabulary of saying that his religious grounding was so eclectic, I think that's what makes any grounding so powerful when it loses any homogeneity and becomes a mix of experience with a wide range of cultures and belief systems and allows you to take in so many different things and then decide what truly resonates with you, which, as he later said, involves a lot of involvement, but also being still and taking in and trying to listen to the people around you without just shoving what you believe on them. That reminds me of working at Fairfax Honda in Virginia. Uh, And in Northern Virginia, it's a huge melting pot of different people and different belief systems. And so I remember there was one of my managers that I worked with and he was Muslim. He was young like me and we connected and we were really good friends and we would sometimes just talk about our religion. I know in a lot of workplaces, it's probably not kosher, but in car sales, like that was just, you know, it was whatever. So you just and used the word kosher and you come from a Christian background. <laughs> That's and you're true. Dealing with a yeah. Muslim, right? It was Muslim friends. So it's a, it's a huge mix, but it was awesome. Just, you know, we were done with work at nine, but we stayed up to 11 at 30 minute drive from my home, just talking about our different religions and finding the commonality in our belief systems. And so going back to that, you know, a lot of these beliefs are generated from wanting to be a good person and wanting to contribute to society. And I feel like he pulled that from his experiences that I had a bunch of different people that helped me learn these things. And these are the things I held on to. And so I think that was something cool. Well, you remember when he said that Grandma Grace was the real deal Christian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I suspect, Paul, that your experience with your manager who was Muslim, that he was the real deal Muslim, that there was nothing, you know, one of the one of the adjectives that is reigning supreme in our lives these days is the adjective fake. And I, I suspect that the reason you even tell that story about your manager and the conversations you had with him was because you didn't sense any fakery. He wasn't posing. He was forthcoming with who he was and what he believed and felt comfortable chatting with you about it. Yeah. And we had a kind of a safe space where we felt comfortable talking about these things without the fear of 
persecution or judgment or any of this stuff. So I think also the space that we were in was also contributed to crucial conversations like that. Did you learn from them? Of course. Of co- I, I learned a ton. I learned a lot about the similarities of the scripture stories that they use uh, in Muslim culture and in Christian culture and just how those stories founded a belief system. And so now I, I, I loved our conversations and we, we pulled in other people that were from different faiths that worked at the same space and we just kind of talked about our belief systems. And, you know, some were a little bit more aggressive than others, but, you know, we, we kind of learned to just listen. Well, maybe that's so. when a customer walks in and you have to get back to work. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think that relates to to the way he was talking about the people in his own congregation and being able to see them as deep wells of wisdom and mm-hmm. not just trying to place a stereotype on who they are as a person of faith in his congregation. And I know that for me, I'm fairly good at reading people in situations, but sometimes I think I get a little too judgy, I guess, or placing blanket statements on people. But... Even just a few days ago, I was teaching a group in my congregation, and it's in a fairly homogenous group of people. <laughs> Most of them, I assume, have a fairly straightforward, simple life. But even for me, often some of these women will come up with such profound insights. And the other day, there was this woman who I've usually honestly never thought twice about her. I don't know her that well. And she started discussing, oh, well, in my first marriage and then when I was divorced and then my experience as a single parent and relying upon my faith in that and all of these parts of her experience and wisdom that came from that that I think often is underestimated without taking time to look deeper and look harder at other people. It's kind of amazing when you think about communities of believers coming together Mm -hmm. and then defaulting to a position, well, they're just like me and their experiences are just like mine. And then these moments happen and you realize it it probably isn't that way. (laughs) Well, I think that's what's powerful about having a group of people to gather with. Like when he talked about Grandma Grace and what made her a genuine real deal Christian was the fact that she was living her faith so tangibly and that even when it was potentially to her own detriment, she was living and working out of her hands and feet, which reminded me of a quote from Brene Brown, where she talks about how we move any truth we have from our head to our heart through our hands, meaning that it's only in acting and getting down on the level with people in day-to-day interactions that anything really comes of it as you gain compassion, getting to know people. Yeah. I think also Grandma Grace being able to see the potential in him. He mentioned two mentors in his interview, and he he talked about Dr. Moore and Grandma Grace. And I think in both these situations, they were able to see more in him than he saw in himself. I think that's what a good mentor does. And I love the examples that he used for mentorship. In life, we all want to have somebody that helps and guides us. And sometimes it's hard to find that person that can take us to the next step. But I feel like his examples were fantastic. And he talked about how Dr. Moore, he had to fight and fight for time and his attention to answer some of his questions and stuff. And sometimes 
I feel like that's really relatable that when we have a mentor, sometimes they're really busy. They're somebody that has a lot of influence. We have to kind of put ourselves out there, be vulnerable and ask questions and kind of get help from them. So I don't know. I, I just loved the two examples of mentorship that he used. I'm still remembering the phrase irenic presence because he said that. I thought, what's he talking about? And and then then he clarified for us he was a peacemaker. You know? mm-hmm. So uh, in a way, irenic presence might be what a Dr. Moore, that's kind of his language. And then a peacemaker might be more like Grandma Grace's language. Mm-hmm. And right there, he's bridging between the – the academic realm that he's in, and then being also a pastor. He lives in those two different worlds. He has citizenship in both of them. And he he, he doesn't put one of those communities above the other at mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. And that's a remarkable thing. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Dr. Darren Davis. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash in good faith. Now back to the conversation. So Dr. Davis talked about each of us having our own personal callings that we have in those moments that knock on the door of our heart, even if it's long before the fulfillment and realization of those experiences and mentioned that as we're feeling called to do that, that we have to do so with taking that faith and then God is able to bless those difficulties and all of those things. And it reminded me of my experience with my career and being able to – so as a speech pathologist, you're required to go to graduate school in order to get any form of lucrative employment. And I had decided on my major – my freshman year, I had agonized over the long lists of majors that they have on the website of the university. And one day I just picked one that sounded like maybe it would be interesting. And it was only over time that it was like, no, I love communication disorders and all of the opportunities that are available. But it was a long process of study. And then in applying to graduate school, the speech language pathology programs throughout the nation are very competitive and they don't accept very many people, even though there is a great shortage of them. But after I applied, and even though I had felt called, it required a lot of faith for me to remember those knocks on the door of my heart and remembering that this felt like something really important for me when I was spending months agonizing over, well, what if I don't get in anywhere? I'm very capable. I have great experience. I think I'm fantastic. (laughs) And I had to have friends and loved ones be the ones to remind me it's going to be fine if you're called to do it. It works out the way it needs to in order for you to have the opportunities to learn and grow and help others. But it was a long process, and eventually I got in. (laughs) I have to ask you, Emily, if that was just discovering your passion or receiving a sense of a calling, because those might not be hand in glove. That's true, because I've also been thinking about that recently, because I don't know the extent to which a lot of parts of my career are a passion, I would say. But I do still feel called, so to speak, in a way that this career is an open door for the avenues that my life needs to take, even though I don't always know what form that will take. And it's years later that I am able to find different ways that I can call back to that day sitting in my freshman dorm. Just kind of like in hindsight, you you see where, where it took you. Exactly. I think also it just reminds me of my experience serving a religious mission for my church. 
that was something that I felt like I had to kind of be dragged kicking and screaming into. It's not a requirement for women in our faith to serve these religious missions. And so I felt like, uh, you know, in in my belief system, I felt like it was something that God wanted me to do, but I didn't want to do it, and I didn't feel like it was a, necessarily a passion of mine. And so I struggled for a while with that kind of that idea, that conviction. Like I, I think this is a direction I'm supposed to go into my in my life, but this isn't a direction I've ever necessarily really wanted to go. But at the same time, after I took those steps in faith to to follow that path that I felt that God had set out for me. I could see in many meaningful ways why it was benefiting my life. And it ended up being an experience where I applied a great deal of passion. I'm a very passionate person, so I was able to get passion behind the the service I was doing and, and see very easily why it was a good thing for me to do. So This word calling, uh, it stops <laughs> me in my tracks. We often talk about calling as though it were passion or career or some kind of an opportunity. When I hear Darren Davis talk about a mission, he, he talked about going to that Catholic school uh, as, as a mission. As You go someplace where you didn't start. You have to go from here to there. You're mm-hmm. sent. The word itself is you have been sent. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. This idea is, I just said it in the passive voice, you've been sent but it's really God sends you. Mm-hmm. And that conviction that God is the one who's driving the story, where do you find that conviction from if you have a sense of mission? Uh, where does that sense come from that God is directing this and sending you? I think what might be something common in a lot of faiths is that God, in whatever form God is in, is a person who is or a, a being who is interested in your life and is interested in, at least for me, it is interested in making me the best possible version of myself and in helping me create a path that will lead to my greatest happiness. So kind of having been raised with an understanding that God is a figure in my life who has my best interests at heart and also understands me in a level that I am still struggling to understand myself. In that way, when I feel like I have direction from God in my life, it makes me want to follow it. I had a mentor tell me that whenever you feel something that is good but uncomfortable to do, that that is coming from God. And there was a couple instances in my life where I felt that and I followed it. And I also felt that uncomfortable feeling of doing something or not doing something and seeing the results from that. Couple quick examples. I also served in a religious mission in the same country as my wife. We both served in Ukraine, but in different parts. So we didn't know each other in Ukraine, but we met each other afterwards and found that connection. In that mission, I I was in a building trying to find somebody, but he wasn't there. And so we were talking to other people and it was scary apartment building at night, really dark, and the people that we were talking to, like, honestly, I was pretty scared. And so I'm like, man, like, why are we here? Why are we in this place? And then we saw a family come out. They were going back into their apartment and they were grocery shopping and he was a little bit drunk. And so we we talked to him and he said, yeah, this is something I'm interested in. I haven't had a real relationship with God, but that's something that I want to develop. And uh, we were able to teach him a little bit more and That was an instance where I followed that uncomfortable feeling of doing something and there was an awesome outcome. But there was also another time where 
I didn't follow that instinct. I didn't follow that uncomfortable feeling. And there was a terrible outcome. I was a counselor for a youth camp and these boys brought out boxing gloves. And I was like, I like to box, I like to fight. So I'm like, all right, let's just have like simple rules and let's have a little boxing night here at the camp. And I had this feeling in my in my mind and in my heart that like, we shouldn't do this or we should stop doing this. Are, are there broken teeth at the end of this story? Um, <laughs> broken lip. A uh, guy bit his lip while he got uppercut and he bled a lot. <laughs> it was a terrible story, but like, Afterwards, I was able to pinpoint where I was not listening to that uncomfortable voice or that uncomfortable feeling that I should stop doing something. So it's uncomfortable because you feel a little resistant to acting on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the action, yeah. like the action to move forward is going to be uncomfortable. You know, I got very so. uncomfortable years ago. I was living in Germany teaching as a teaching assistant at a school for a year. And one of my mentors took me aside and kind of chastised me <laughs> and uh, said, you have a real sense of mission, don't you? And I'd never really thought of it in sort of negative terms. He was telling me kind of, you're outspoken, you're speaking your mind, you're trying to change people's ideas, you're kind of pushy. (laughs) And that hurts when you're told that kind of a thing. And after that experience, I did some serious self-reflection and I started thinking about the arrogance of feeling like God had sent me to people which we don't often, you know, Darren Davis is a pastor and a professor. A professor is somebody who professes. They speak out, right? Mm -hmm. That's what a professor does. A pastor is going to speak and preach. There was a season of my life after that where I sort of withdrew and I just just wouldn't speak out on, on things because of the presumptuousness of saying to people, I'm a messenger from God and I've got things to tell you. Man, that's, that's bold. That is beyond I don't like the word bodacious, you know, but that's that's just beyond, you know. And, and yet, as a believer, I still hold open the possibility that there are times when God wants me to do something and maybe to speak mm-hmm. out. To open my mouth is kind of the phrase that we get to use in, in, in my religion, to open your mouth. Darren really impresses me as somebody who very humbly opens his mouth because he, re- he respects the wisdom of these other people in mm-hmm. his community. So when he speaks out, he's drawing on their wisdom and not necessarily correcting them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think to your point and to, to a point that Dr. Davis made, that's why I think those moments of stillness are so important, um, just like he talked about, because you might have a direction you're going in life or, or something you're you're doing with your time or energy that might very much seem like a it's a mission or a calling, but without taking time to be still and quiet and listen to um, the voices of those around you, but also attempt to listen to God's interjections into your life, you might be kind of plowing off in a direction you shouldn't be. Or the reverse, you might be put in a situation where you should speak up and say something and you won't know unless you're listening. So I really was fascinated by that as well. And, and coming from the Baptist tradition, the idea of witnessing uh, for him is mm-hmm. a very important thing. I, I admire somebody who knows himself so well that when he speaks to people, he respects them, mm-hmm. but he right. also has ultimately respect for whatever mission God has for him. Right. So what about his alcoholic dad and the way he circled back to that? You know, at the beginning, he kind of talked about the circumstances, like in defined circumstances, why his grandma was kind of taking him to church and taking him to Pentecostal church that that wasn't in his family. Like that wasn't 
something there. So I was really curious what the connection was and why he was going with his family or something like that. And so when he was able to open up and say, you know, my father was an alcoholic and that's why he had this addiction, this problem that he was so debilitating for him and his family and his ability to connect with God. And I don't know, I just I just think it's interesting how from the perspective of the interview that he was able to be open and vulnerable about that pretty private situation. But later on, just from the aspect of the story that how many of us have a father that because of their actions has affected the way we believe and the way that we see God in our lives. Well, Darren arrived to the point where the way he saw God in his life, as you say, Paul, uh, that, that phrase, well, the way we see God in our lives, his words were, even when we think we can't put ourselves back together, it's possible. And then he corrected himself, well, with God, it's possible. Mm-hmm. To have those legacies of both the Grandma Graces, who seem like the real deal, but also the people close to us who seem like damaged goods and leave legacies potentially of harm to us. But his story, his story certainly was a hopeful one because he said for the last couple decades, his father was arrived at a place of sobriety and, mm-hmm. and uh, was able to offer. I can hear this man as a pastor maybe in my mind's eye, in my mind's ear, preaching to his congregation about, look, my dad was saved from a hell. My dad was, he came out of this. You can too. Mm-hmm. I, I encourage you all to have that faith, have that hope. Those examples of sort of the straight arrow people who never make mistakes, we don't have to always gravitate towards those. We can mm-hmm. look for the people who've been saved and redeemed. And I think that is one of the most important aspects of building a community of any kind, but specifically a community of faith, is shared difficult experiences, whether it be your own or that of a family member. Um, the times we've slipped up in life or the times that we've been, I don't know, down for one reason or another, that helps strengthen relationships in communities of faith. And I think that's really vital. Right. That's exactly where I was going. But I think it's important to point out the fact that the circumstances that brought him to faith, it wasn't a walk through the park. They were difficult years, but I think it's human nature to neurobiologically, we try to avoid things that are difficult. We try to take the easiest path that there is, when in reality, it's those difficult experiences or difficult, uncomfortable callings, so to speak, that are the ones that forge the way for our faith to be strengthened and to better notice God. Mm -hmm. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Marcus, Emily, Jillian, and Paul and especially to Dr. Darren Davis for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Our associate producer is Rachel Sherman. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, in good faith.